Okay, now, this is our second class. Uh, we stopped last time, I understand, at this point in your notes. Further comments on Paul? You have your notes? Uh, we did an overview, we gave an outline. We started going through the introduction. We're going to come back to some of that. In a sense, we're still going to do some overview, but we're also going to take certain sections and go through it in detail. We're going to say some more things about the Apostle Paul, the author of the epistle as well, all right? And that's where we'll begin. Um, we will not be able to um, give a review every time we meet because it takes up a lot of time in the class itself. So we're just going to pick up from here uh, under the section that we've named Further Comments on Paul. First of all, Paul had a definite relationship to God in Christ. Now, if you read Acts chapter 9, 2 Timothy 1, you read about this, where Paul's relationship with God uh, as a result of his being called by Jesus Christ to be the apostle to the Gentiles. He had a very sp special relationship with God through Jesus Christ, and that's mentioned throughout Scripture. And we want to emphasize that because Paul is carrying the gospel to the Gentiles. Remember now, the Gentiles were not a part, we would say they, of God's um, uh, people during the Old Testament period. The Jews were God's chosen people. But then in come to the New Testament, the book of Acts especially, it is revealed to us a mystery was revealed that God would put Israel aside for a while and choose a new group of people he calls the church, the body of Christ. It's not just made up of one nation, but is made up of Jew and Gentile alike. And this mission was given primarily to the Apostle Paul. And so this is his uniqueness, his special relationship. He also had a definite relationship with the Holy Spirit. Uh, you need to read, study Romans 8. If you haven't done it, it's a fantastic chapter. Paul describes in Romans 7 how as a Pharisee, trying to obey the law, that he just became thoroughly frustrated. And uh, it wasn't until um, he understood what it meant to be indwelt by the Spirit of God that he had that freedom. And remember how he ended, thanks be unto God. Um, um, how does it go for um, victory in Christ Jesus? I think it's how he ended that passage. So he had a special relationship with the Holy Spirit as well. By that I mean he realized that it was the Spirit of God who energized him to do what God had commanded him to do. Remember we looked at the passage on, on Sunday, the Lord's Day, in Colossians 1, 28 and 29, where he talked about how the power of God was at work in him to help him to fulfill uh, this divine obligation that God had placed upon him to preach the gospel. That's what he did. He had a definite call to service. We looked at that already in Romans 1 called himself an apostle called of Jesus Christ and so on. He mentions that throughout the epistles that he's written, the fact that he had a definite call to service by Jesus Christ. And he emphasizes that again and again and again. Why this is so important, why we want to go through it, is because in dealing with the book of Romans, which focuses on the gospel of Christ, you'd understand why he spends so much time in explaining what the gospel is. It's impossible to understand the gospel if you don't know the, the, the book of Romans, because Romans explains what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. You know, we have come just to accept the little cliche, the gospel is Jesus died for the sins of the world. That's really a superficial approach to what the gospel is. It's much more than that. It expands upon that. More, not in any way diminishing the importance of the death of Christ. But that's not the gospel. 
all, only the gospel, I should say. That's a very small part of it. And I mean that. It's a very small part of it. But we've become so uh, used to the evangelistic approach to preaching the word, we have narrowed down what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And I hope we could expand that as we go along. So, but he also had a definite life purpose. It's in Philippians 3. Remember, he says that he was striving to do what? To lay hold of that for which God had laid hold of him. Right? That was his purpose in life. And as I mentioned again in one of our messages recently, he said that he, his entire uh, life was committed to doing what God had called him to do. His life was given over to proclaiming the word of God in a way that it could be understood. And he said everything else was secondary to that purpose. He also had a definite expectation. I want you to read this. Would somebody please have the scripture? This is the same part where he talks about his purpose. But if you have your Bibles, would somebody read Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. In fact, let's read the whole passage from 16 to 21. If you have that passage, you read it, please. Philippians chapter 3, 16 through 21. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. So what he was looking forward to then is what? The coming of Christ when He will be transformed. That's what his great expectation as a, as a, as a believer, as a servant of Christ. He had a definite prayer life. Um, Ephesians 1, you know, the two great prayers in Ephesians, chapter 1 and chapter 3. Um, and even in Colossians, where Paul focuses on his prayer life, his prayer life focusing on praying for the people uh, with whom he ministered and amongst whom he ministered. So what I'm trying to show you here that Paul was an individual whose life was consumed with a passion for pleasing God. And he did that by committing himself to accomplish the purpose that he felt God had called him to, to proclaim the gospel so those who hear could be mature in Christ as they look forward to that time of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That was Paul's motivation. Paul was an outstanding servant of Christ. His ministry, we looked at it before in Colossians 1.28. Um, this is how it this is what it says. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. Here is the end purpose. So that we may present every man teleos in Christ, complete in Christ, mature in Christ. Alright, now notice how this is broken down. His message is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. I think you've heard me mention before in several of my messages that that's, I believe, is a message that should be preached to Christians. That's why I use the phrase sometimes, and I've used it quite a bit in the past few weeks, that I believe Christians get hung up on the cross too much. You see? They get hung up on the cross too much. We have to go beyond the cross as far as the Christian is concerned, you see. We even have to go beyond the, the grave, you see. We have to go inside us because that's where Christ is. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And he is living his life in and through us, you see. His message is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And as he is given possession of our lives, 
we become mature in Christ. We become complete in Christ. That's his message. He goes on. His method, this is how he did it. Warning and teaching. Um, not just teaching nice stuff for people to be blessed. You know, you always hear people say, well, I don't want to hear all kinds of fire and hell and brimstone preaching and shouting and all that. I want to come to church and I just want to be blessed. You cannot find any kind of attitude like that or teaching like that in the Bible. The Word of God is not only taught to bless, that's a part of it, mind you, but also to warn, to warn people of this sinful lifestyle, warn people of the certainty of hell, of living apart from God if you don't place faith in Christ. It's warning and teaching. And Paul said that's his method in bringing people to maturity in Christ. You see? Bringing people to maturity in Christ. I got a letter from somebody this week saying that some people are uncomfortable with some of the things I preach. So I had to write back and say, well, you know, my, my aim as a preacher is not to make people comfortable. It's to teach the Word. Now, if I teach it wrong or erroneously, that's a different story. But we're here to preach the Word, not to make people feel comfortable or feel blessed. If the Word blesses them, fine. But many times the blessing comes through warnings. And we have to understand that. That was Paul's message. His method, rather, to get his message across. To warn and to teach the Word. His motive to present every man perfect or mature or complete in Christ. To present every man perfect, mature or complete in Christ. See, that's what it's all about. This is what I have committed my ministry to, you see. In building up, edifying, equipping believers, making them mature, you see. That's what my entire life is committed to. And as Paul says here, For this purpose also I labor, Strong word here. Striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Paul is saying that he was motivated by the power of God working in and through him. That's his relationship with the Holy Spirit in order to accomplish the purpose for which he was called. Isn't that a tremendous passage, isn't it? Paul now goes on to describe the gospel. This is back to chapter 1 now of the book of Romans. And this is why I say have your Bibles open as you go along. He describes the gospel. This is what the passage says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets to Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. According to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Now, here are some things in that. The source, and you put this together for the whole context, the source of the gospel, because remember now, this is what Paul is describing, the gospel. The source is God, not man. He demonstrates this in his statements all through. And you know when you put all the scriptures together, it was God who loved the world. It was God who gave his son. And as a result, he offers us free salvation. The point Paul makes throughout this gospel is that the salvation has its source in God alone, not man. All right? Its source is in God, not man. All right? And this is a vital part of understanding the gospel. Man has nothing to do with his own salvation. You see? The channel of the gospel is the prophets. He says that he promised beforehand through the God prophets in the Holy Scriptures. He says the same thing in chapter 3, verse 21. And so the gospel isn't something that just started in the New Testament. The gospel started way back. In fact, it started right in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15. What does that say? You remember? 
Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 verse 16. The seed and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman will bruise the seed of the serpent and so on. That's the gospel in a nutshell. In fact, that verse or those verses 15 and 16 is a capsule of the entire Bible. From that point on, God through the Holy Spirit describes how that one statement came about. All of the Old Testament has to do with tracing the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. All through. That's what it's all about. You see. <clears throat> so the channel is the prophets. It began there. And of course, Paul includes himself in the New Testament prophets along with the apostles and so on. The, con the content or the concern of the gospel is the Son of Jesus Christ. Notice what it says. Which he, that's God, promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. By the way, remember this was not promised in theological books. It wasn't promised in universities. It was promised through the Holy Scriptures. If we want to know the gospel, we have got to know the Holy Scriptures. Because actually, that is the gospel. That is the gospel. In the, in the Holy Scripture, notice, concerning his son. This gospel's concerned Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the concern of this gospel. That's the content. The message concerning the Son of God, he was made of the seed of David. According to the flesh. A descendant of David. Again, this is tied up to Genesis 3.15. The seed. In fact, when you come to Galatians, what does Paul say about the seed? Paul said when he said seed, he didn't say seeds, meaning a lot of people. He said the seed, meaning who? Jesus Christ. So Genesis 3.15 talks about Jesus Christ. When it says the seed of the woman will bruise the heel of Satan, I'm sorry, head of Satan, he was saying that Jesus Christ will crush the head of Satan. Jesus Christ, that's what it said. So Jesus Christ was mentioned by name in Genesis 3, but that wasn't revealed until Galatians. Paul says the seed was Jesus Christ, right? So you could substitute the word the seed in Genesis 3 and put Jesus Christ in. And you have the idea of progressive revelation. What is progressive revelation? Right, it doesn't reveal everything all at once. He plants a concept, a seed if you want, and then he explains it as his revelation goes on. When the Jewish people opened Genesis chapter 3, the scroll or whatever it is, and they didn't have verses back then, but when they came to that passage talking about the seed of the woman, they didn't see Jesus Christ there. Nobody in the Old Testament saw Jesus Christ there. It's not until we come to the New Testament in Galatians, that seed was Jesus Christ. You understand what I'm saying? That seed was Jesus Christ. That's a beautiful illustration of progressive revelation, you see. Made of the seed of David. His method? This is the message now of the prophets and Paul preaching the gospel. Declared to be the Son of God. Declared. This has to do with proclaiming, announcing. And there's two words in the Greek that talks about announcing, or, or teaching anyway. The one used here is the idea of proclaiming. Uh, it's, it's, it's the word... Well, the Hebrew word is the Hebrew word, um, what is it, Pastor Obi? Tell me, man, remind me. <laughs> uh, I forgot. It'll, it'll come. But it has the idea of proclaiming, announcing, all right? It's the same word that is used in 1 Corinthians 11 when it talks about what we do when we remember the Lord. What do we do when we remember the Lord? We proclaim his death until he comes. That's the same word, proclaim. 
we announce, we make clear, we, one of the translations says we placard, the way you uh, put a big sign up, poster up. That's what we do here. Jesus Christ is declared as the Son of God. You see? He is announced to be the, the Son of God. He's, he's, uh, he is heralded, that's the word too, to be the Son of God. That's the idea here. Also, he focuses on his death. Declared to be the Son of God from the dead. Notice going uh, resurrection from the dead. So you have both his death and his resurrection actually. This is the content of the gospel. Jesus Christ being God, he died and he was raised again. See, he died and he's raised again. By the way, you cannot preach the gospel if you don't preach the resurrection. And I have made, I have heard many evangelists preach the gospel about Christ dying for the sins of the world, but never focus on the resurrection. If you read the book of Acts, for instance, do you know that when Paul began to preach the gospel and the apostles, they hardly mentioned the death of Christ? Their focus was on the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ. So he mentioned his death and his resurrection from the dead by the resurrection. These are essential ingredients of the gospel. You cannot declare, explain the gospel unless you say that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, Jesus Christ died, and Jesus Christ was raised again. He died for man's sin. He was res he resurrected for in order that they be justified. Uh, his resurrection was God's amen to Christ on the cross saying, it is finished. The resurrection validated the authenticity of the death of Christ. And you have to have both when you preach the gospel. And then it talks about the headship of Christ, by whom we have received grace and apostleship. He's trying to show now it was true Jesus Christ that we talked about this before, that he was appointed to preaching this gospel that Jesus Christ is God, that he died for the sins of the world, and that he was raised for the justification. He was under the headship of Jesus Christ. He was under the leadership of Jesus Christ. He was a slave to his master, Jesus Christ. See, all of this is in this verse. The object of this gospel is all nations. Notice what he says in verse 5, to bring about the obedience of faith, among all the Gentiles, that's the nations, for his namesakes. That's why the Great Commission is what? Go ye into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Right? Make disciples of all nations here, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So, you see, in these couple of verses here, we have a lot told us a lot of information is given concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now let me just look at some of the different terminologies or different terms that Paul used to describe the gospel in this chapter, in this book. Now we can go look at all of the references, you have them. He calls it the gospel of God. Now, remember I mentioned before the importance of prepositions. Prepositions signify different things depending on their context. Of is a preposition that signifies what? Source. Source. For instance, you are called the son, believers are called the children of God, meaning that we have our source of life in God. You see? The gospel has its source in God. It shows God as a source of the salvation with which Paul was so ready and eager to preach. He calls it the gospel of God, meaning that the source is God. He calls it the gospel of Christ. In these different verses here, it's a heavenly message concerning a heavenly person and what he accomplished on the cross. Now, the word of here, although it still carries the idea of source, it has more of the idea of identification. All right? In other words, the gospel that reveals or speaks of Christ, tells about him, all right? Um, uh, this, is, this is an important thing when you go into the book of Acts, for instance, too. It says, uh, 
Remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, what does Acts 1, verse 8 says? Hmm? Acts 1, 8. Come on. But you shall receive power. All right, but you shall become witnesses. You shall, what kind of, whose witnesses? You shall become, look at it, look at the text. See, words are important. What does it say? All right, how does it say it there? What does it say? My witnesses, right? Now, when you say my, what do you think about? Ownership, for one thing, right? Ownership is one, but what else? In other words, do we become witnesses that belong to Jesus Christ? Or do you become witnesses that tell of Jesus Christ? What is a witness? A person who tells or testifies of that. So he's saying that we will become those who what? Tell or testify of Jesus Christ. What I'm saying is here, even in the case with my, although we say that we belong to Jesus, the preposition carries a different concept as well. Now, that's important when you understand the true meaning a witness. When you hear the word witness, what do you think about? You just said it. Huh? Somebody telling something, right? You testify of that which you have witnessed. That's a part of it. But the word witness comes from a Greek word from which we get the word martyr. It's matus. So Jesus is saying that you are going to be martyrs for me. And each one of the disciples were in the sense, except maybe John if you look at it. All right? My, my point is, I want you to understand the importance of the word of God. Jesus says that not one jot or one tittle of the words can go unfulfilled. Isn't that right? So we've got to be very careful how we handle the word of God. We have to study it very carefully because it tells us a lot of things. All right, number three is the gospel of peace. A gospel of peace. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. It's a message that reveals how, ev how everything has been settled, settled between God and man by Christ Jesus. The word you're going to remember here is the word propitiation. They're going to come up later. The reason why we have peace with God is because Jesus Christ is our propitiation. How many of you heard the word propitiation? All right. What does propitiation mean? Place of satisfaction. It's a place of satisfaction or the means of satisfaction. All right. Jesus Christ's death on the cross was the place where God was satisfied. Man and God was reconciled by the sacrifice of Christ. That's what propitiation is all about here. Everything has been settled between God and man by Christ Jesus. All right? And therefore, it's a gospel of peace. It's a good news about peace between God and man brought about by the satisfaction of God with the death of Jesus Christ. Isn't that beautiful? You see? He is our propitiation, and he will be preaching that, he says, the gospel of peace. He also calls it my gospel. In chapter 2, verse 16, he says, my gospel. He used that several times. This was the message entrusted to him, and he was commissioned to preach. And Paul saw this 
as his possession. This was his gospel. This was the message that was given to him by God, by Jesus Christ. And he emphasized that. If you read the book of Galatians, for instance, Paul says he went up to Jerusalem after he spent three years where? In the wilderness, in Arabia. He spent three years. And then when you read the scriptures, you'll find that when Je that's when Jesus Christ appeared to him again and again to teach him things. And so he says, after that he went up to Jerusalem and he saw James and he saw Peter. He said, but he did not get his gospel from them. He just went to make sure that they were preaching the right thing, I guess, in one sense. He wants to be sure that their gospel was the same. And he said, I did not get my gospel from man. I got my gospel from God. You see? I preach a message, well, several messages on that. And I named that message, I gave the title of that message, The Gospel. Where did you get yours? Because many people get the gospel, but they don't get the gospel of God. They get the gospel of man. You see? And I would go to our message to show you that many people who believe that they're saved, they're not, because when they heard what is supposed to be the gospel, was not in fact the gospel at all. It was the gospel of man. Paul says, this gospel is mine. And he says to, he says to the Thessalonians, if anyone comes and preach any other gospel other than the one that I taught you or preached to you, let him what? Let him go to hell. That's what it means. If anyone preaches any other gospel other than the one I preach, the one based on faith alone and Christ alone through grace alone, so let him go to hell. That's how strong Paul was concerning the accuracy of the gospel. Then he goes on in verse 7 now to describe the Romans to those to whom he's writing. He says, to those that be in Rome, that's their location. Now this is why I'm saying if you have your Bibles, if you write a lot of these things in here, you will have a whole Bible study right in your Bible whenever you read it. Their location, this is their physical location in Rome. Right? And Rome at that time was the chief city in the world. The major city. It would be, if you look at the Bahamas, compared to Nassau. If you look at the United States way back then, it would be either New York or Washington, D.C. Right? The chief city. This was the hub of, uh, of uh, society, as it were, in the world at that time. That's where they were. And he's addressing the gospel to these people. And you have to study Rome and see the paganism, the immorality, and the idolatry that was prevalent. And he is preaching a gospel that goes contrary to everything that these people believed, you see. And that's the gospel. Their relation to God, beloved of God. All that be in Rome, beloved of God. Paul always liked to remind believers of God's love for them. You see, that's what caused him to send his son. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Paul constantly reminded the people of God's love for them. This is one of the, the things that always promised my memory when I first became a Christian. I placed my faith in Christ because I misinterpreted scripture. I'm still trying to deal with that one. But it's the passage in 1 John 2.15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Right? For all that is in the world, love of flesh and so on. Well, I interpret that passage to mean that if I love the world, and let me tell you something, I loved the world back then. I loved the world. If anyone loved the world, I interpret it to mean that God doesn't love me. When it says that the love of God is not in him. I thought that meant that God didn't love me. You see? And I said, boy, I want God to love me. 
And that was one of the things that motivated me to receive Christ as my Savior. And of course, I also said the other night, um, when I was going home that night, I asked God to forgive me for receiving Christ as my Savior. Because I was taught at that time in the Anglican Church that to worship in another church was a sin. And I really thought that I had committed a sin by receiving Jesus Christ as my Savior. And my first prayer as a Christian, I thought, was, Father, forgive me for receiving Christ. Isn't that something? Uh, but that night and early that morning, the, the light came on. And I remember that's true. It, it, and I remember using that phrase early in the morning, kneeling at the bed when I was going through that passage again, I understood what it meant. And I remember saying the words, I see the light. And I got up from my bed. I had dice, cards, pornography, all kinds of things in my suitcase. And I went outside and made a bonfire and burned them all up. Just because I realized that God loved me. That's what he's reminding people here. Be loved of God. And listen, when you're loved of God, you know you can have nothing greater. Amen? We need to be thankful for that. As to their calling, saints, they're called saints. Now notice this carefully, please. They're not called to become saints. They are saints because they were called of God. This is what we call a positional truth. We had nothing to do with becoming saints. God made us saints. Now, of course, in the teaching today, and especially in the Roman Catholic Church, how do you become a saint? Or one becomes a saint? Right, you got to do something good. You got to do a miracle. You'd be dead, eh? Be dead. Right. But what he's saying, no, here, God has called you as his beloved. You are saints. Saint comes from the word holy, set apart. We are called to be set apart for the use of God. The utensils in the tabernacle were holy, consecrated, set apart. For use only for worshiping God. That's how God sees us. We are called to be set aside to be used for the glory of God. That's why we should have holy lives, pure lives. You see. Otherwise, when we serve God or worship God, it's contaminated. You see. It's not accepted by God. It's the same truth here. He's going to deal with that, especially when we come to chapter 6, 7, and 8. Of Romans 6. So as to the calling, they're saints. We are holy ones in his sight. Then at the last part of verse 7, Paul gives his benediction in, in this opening introduction. Uh, and this isn't the closing of the book, mind you. It's just his, his uh, closing of his greeting. He says, grace be unto you. Grace and peace. Now we always make this comment that can be no peace with God or peace of God until you have received the grace of God. In Ephesians 2 it says what? For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is what? The gift of God. Now remember there are two aspects of peace when it comes to our relationship with God. The first is peace with God. That comes through acknowledging the fact that we're sinners, condemned because of our sins, from separation from God. That's what death is. We can do nothing to restore that fellowship with him. So God sent his son, his sinless son, to take the penalty for our sin. He did not become sin for us. He became our sin offering on the cross. God raised him from the dead to validate the fact that he had, established, he had accepted Christ's death on our behalf. When we place our faith alone in Christ alone because of grace of God alone, we have peace with God. Because Christ has settled it. You see? That's peace with God. That brings us into an experience of what we call salvation. But then within that experience, 
we can have the peace of God. Now, this is the peace that has its source in God alone. It's the same peace that God enjoys. We can have that peace. What kind of peace is that? This is the peace that guards our hearts and mind in Christ Jesus from worry, from concern. Because we realize that we are holy ones set apart by God to worship him. That's why in that passage in Philippians chapter 4, it says, Be anxious for what? Nothing. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And what? The peace of God. Not peace with God. The peace of God will do what? God. Keep. That word is referee. It's, it's a tremendous word. It has, actually has two connotations. One of them is, is the either of a, of a, of a, of a, of a uh, what do you call it where soldiers live? Uh, fort, a, a thing. It's like a garrison, like a garrison. The, the peace of God will garrison your heart. No matter what's going on out there, you got to have that peace of God, that tranquility with God. That's what he's talking about here. He says, peace in the heart. That's what I call it uh, when he says grace and peace. Peace in the heart. Uh, then he talks about where this grace and peace comes from. It comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only the triune God who can give us peace with God and peace of God. They're the only ones, the only ones who confer Peace with God and peace of God upon sinners. Amen? Isn't this great truth? Isn't it great? I feel like preaching. Grace is always described as being from God the Father. We mentioned that a little bit before. Who is the source? The Lord Jesus Christ is always sees as the channel, agent, means, and sphere of divine blessings. Remember that tells us in Ephesians, we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. See, in Christ Jesus. By the way, that's a beautiful phrase, in Christ Jesus. When you're in Christ Jesus, you, you fix. you okay. In Christ Jesus. That's where salvation is to be found. In Christ Jesus. Sometimes, however, especially in regard to the church, grace is said to come holy from Christ as well. You read that in 2 Corinthians. Anybody get, get the Bible? Just 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Uh, this, by the way, is another way of showing the deity of Jesus Christ. When you see certain things attributed to him that is also attributed to God. You see, that shows that Jesus is equal with God. All right? Somebody got that? the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. By the way, this is one of the several passages in the New Testament that mentions the triune God altogether, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is one of them here. Tremendous passage for benediction. So, it shows God as the source, Jesus as the bestower, or the agent, the channel, the Holy Spirit is the communicator. The grace of our Lord is defined in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 8 through 9, where we quoted before. Uh, For by grace are you saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. All right? Now, Paul goes on after he uh, makes his introduction, he goes on and talks about the gospel. In verses 8 through 10 of chapter 1, he makes an intercession. He begins to pray for the believers at Rome. He begins with his thanksgiving. Somebody just read those two verses as we go through it first. Verses 8 through 10. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, 
asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. As we mentioned earlier, prayer was a vital part of Paul's ministry. Again, Paul is modeling for us how our lifestyle should be as Christians as well. Prayer should be an important part of our lifestyle, praying for others. And his faithfulness in prayer uh, is seen throughout uh, the epistles. And we have uh, many of the references here. Paul continually prayed for those to whom he ministered on an ongoing, consistent basis. All right? He says that his prayer was to the Father through Jesus, to the Father through Jesus Christ. You'll always see this as a sequence or a pattern of prayer in the New Testament. Prayer is to the Father through Christ and also through the energy of the Holy Spirit. But that's always the, um, the pattern. Prayer is to the Father through Jesus Christ and the energy of the Spirit of God. You see? the motivation of the Spirit of God, if you want. And then he lists some of the things that he prayed for. He prayed for the Christians, first of all, the Roman Christians. Paul shows throughout his writings that he is interested in the individual. One of the things that always makes me ashamed is when I read Paul's closing words in most of his epistles, he names people individually in the churches and so on, where he ministers. And I can hardly remember the name of my wife and children, much less people in the congregation. That's an awful thing to say, but it's true. But Paul remembered individuals, and he names them by names throughout his epistles. He had a concern for individuals, and he prayed for them by name. You see, this is quite a challenge to all of us, and it's a pattern that we should adopt. He prayed for the Roman Christians. He prayed for their testimony. Now, according to his prayer, the testimony of the Roman Christians were outstanding. What did he say about them in those verses? His love spread all about, throughout the world. So he said their testimony was outstanding. It was known throughout the world. Rome, remember, was the capital of the empire. The Roman historian Tacitus said, and I quote, Into Rome flow all things vile and abominable, and where they are encouraged. That's how he described Rome. Probably if he was living today, that's what he described Nassau like. Now, to have a Christian assembly in such a city was quite a thing. But to have believers, saints, living singularly pure lives was a greater testimony to the divine source of Christianity. That's Kenneth Wiest. He was a Greek uh, professor at Moody Bible Institute many, many years ago. So he's saying to have a Christian church in a city like Rome with a testimony that they were living a good and a pure Christian life was really an outstanding thing. That's the kind of a reputation that we should have as believers, not only as a local church, but as individuals. If Paul were to write to Calvary Bible Church today, how do you think he would describe us? But you see, Paul was writing to a congregation, and he commended them for the fact that their testimony was outstanding. They were living pure holy lives in a corrupt city. Isn't that, I, I think that's amazing. It, it really is. And that's what we should strive for as well. Now his prayer is in verses 9 and 10. Somebody please read that again. Well, we read that already. We read that. So just let's look at the outline. And again, I encourage you to write some of these things in your book to notice because we've really broken down each verse almost word by word. The character, the atmosphere, if you want, of the prayer. It was constant. He said, I prayed with, without ceasing, always. Paul was a prayer warrior, as he would call him today. He was consistent and he was constant in his prayer, without ceasing. 
His prayer was also characterized by concern. He says, by any means, by any means. He wanted to come to see these people. He hadn't seen them. He wanted to come to see them. You see, and he's going to explain in a little while why he wants to see them. But he has a real, real passion and concern to see these believers. And he says, the prayer is also committed to the will of God. He says, by the will of God. In other words, hey, you know, I could make my plans. In fact, he can explain he did make all kind of plans, but he, didn't, he couldn't make it. So he says, by the will of God. He was resigned to living a life that was in keeping with the will of God. And in spite of his own plans being thwarted several times, he still had that concern, that passion to go to be with them. And so he says, by the will of God. And we must remember, you remember James talks about this, he says, to you all who say, you're going to Miami or Palm Beach tomorrow and I can do and do this and do that. So you shouldn't do that unless you say, by the will of God. Because when you leave God out of those planning, you're putting yourself in the place of God. See, that's, that's what James is bringing out. When you plan and leave God out of the plan, you are putting yourself in the place of God. You see. By the way, that's quite a message for, for business people about making profits and everything without thinking about God. And then he said, and then he goes on to the contents. What, what was he praying for? To come unto you. By any means, by the will of God, I want to come unto you. And he was praying this on an ongoing basis. And the other passages we have there, you also have references where Paul prayed with concern for his people and his desire to do things or to be with them or whatever. But this is an insight here into Paul's heart, into his 